Hey, what's up? This is Madam Butterfly, and you are listening to another episode of Frequency Bay. Thank you so much for joining me. So we are in a brand new month. It is officially the month of November. We've got about, what, two more months of this year left? 2021 is almost over, ladies and gentlemen. So uh, I hope you're ready, because we're almost there. And it's very exciting uh, to be closing out um 2021 it's been one hell of a fucking year i don't know about for y'all but for me it's been it's been a hell of a year but anyway uh we're going to be getting into the topic of sex ed today um i wanted to start november with something hot since we're getting kind of cold outside (laughs) that's so cheesy um but yeah, I wanted to go over the the conversation, the topic of sex ed, um, specifically around orgasm and um, erotic intelligence. So we will be going over a bit of a lecture on YouTube, of course, one of my favorite places to play. YouTube about erotic intelligence. And this is a... Really, it could be on its own, but I'm um I'm gonna pair it with an article. First, I'm gonna like like I said, I'm gonna start with a thirty minute video uh, about erotic intelligence, and afterwards, we're gonna go into a article about uh, the different types of orgasms and how to have them and how they work and different things like that. So, uh, thanks so much for joining me. If you decide to join me, wherever you are, morning, noon, or night, um, they should be pretty good. So. I'm going to go ahead and get into it. Let's see here. And shout out to Mind Valley Talks for this really awesome um, information. It says, the main question people ask before committing to a marriage or relationship is, what is love? Uh, In this inspiring Mind Valley talk, Esther Peel, celebrity therapist and relationship expert, informs us that couples who continue to maintain intimacy throughout the relationship report report higher relationship satisfaction compared to couples who can't keep things the same. Interesting. Oh, that's good. That's really interesting. You have unlimited potential, so your personal growth should be unlimited, too. That's why we've launched the quest, all access pass for unrestricted learning and, and self-empowerment. Uh, get instant access to the information and courses, and there's a link. Uh, I'll also be posting this uh, video on my Frequency Bay Pay Facebook page uh, afterwards. So if you want to check it out for yourself, you're more than, uh, you're more than welcome to. Uh, so let's go ahead and get into this. And again, thanks so much for joining me today on Frequency Bay. There are a few questions that I've been asked repeatedly. Who are you? What do you do? How did you come to this? What does your day look like? So I thought I would just give you a little hint there's a reason also why I actually don't talk that much about me or my life or or my marriage or my family. I I wait because I think that much of what I want to do is put questions to you and not even answer them immediately, but let you sit with them a little bit. Let you think of them in a different frame. Have you come into a session with one story of your life and maybe leave the session with another story of your life. And if I answer, I collapse. And if I talk about what I do, then I become a model, which I don't want to be. Because as I said in the first day, there is no such a thing as the person who has figured it all out. It's a moment in time when I think I'm getting there. And then after that, I fumble as well. So I'm married for 30 four years. I have two sons. They are 20 and 23. And probably one of the best ways I can describe my relationship is like this. Today in the West, most of us are going to have two or three marriages or committed relationships. 
and some of us are going to do it with the same person. we've had four marriages, I think we've had three marriages to each other, but that's the idea, you know. Um, if I was to tell you of, of maybe of an influence of what really motivates me, what do I do? I am a psychologist, I see patients, I have a predilection for working with couples across cultures. Um, my place in this world is to create open, meaningful, bold, challenging conversations about this subject that affects us all called relationships. I think more than ever at this point, people are hungry for truth. And so I try to contribute to creating relationships and conversations about relationships that are true. And truth is not always easy. It's sometimes painful. It's sometimes beyond our comfort zone. So I want to tell you about a few of the things I do for that. But maybe one of the places where I have mined a lot of the truth and where I have mined that distinction that we talked about on day one, where I said, when I meet with couples, I see some couples who are not dead and some couples who are alive. And my goal is to help people create thriving relationships, not just to be in one. I come from a family of two parents who were concentration camp survivors. My two parents are the sole survivors of their entire family. And I grew up in a community in Antwerp, Belgium, that was exclusively Holocaust survivors. And in this community, I always saw two groups of people, those who did not die and those who came back to life. And those who did not die lived rather tethered to the ground the world was a dangerous place you could not trust and certainly you could not enjoy or experience pleasure because if you did, it meant you went not on guard and if you were not on guard, shit could happen. And those who came back to life are those who understood the erotic. Eroticism as a life force, not just in its modern narrow definition of sex, but basically how do you reimagine yourself, how do you reinvent yourself how do you bring back an energy, a vitality, an aliveness? And it was my parents who inspired me to look at it like that. So much of what I try to do is actually help people connect with their aliveness. And aliveness goes with meaning, goes with purpose, goes with creativity, goes with playfulness, and goes with connection to oneself, to, the, to one's partners, families, and to the world the politics of the world. And I think much of what you will hear from me comes from this source. This is probably what has influenced the most, how I think, how I look at the world, what I do, and so forth. So, um, in this effort to create truthful conversations, I have just completed one of my most creative projects, besides the book that is coming out, which is a new audio series, a podcast that is called Where Should We Begin? And as it is, it was launched in the US yesterday evening. <laughs> so I thought, here's what I want to do. I want to play you a couple of clips. You're the first. That's it. The baby is born. <laughs> It's on Audible, it's on iTunes, um, it's co-produced with Audible and Amazon. Uh, it's 10 unscripted episodes of 10 anonymous, one-time couples counseling sessions. And so when people want to know what do I do, what happens in my office, this is probably the closest I can ever bring you into the four walls of the room where I spend many, many hours. And as you will see, sometimes when you listen in on the private, intimate conversations of other couples, which we never have access to, because we all think we are alone in this it one, your and couples are often isolated islands, you will realize that often listening in on others puts you in front of your own mirror. Yeah. 
and that when you are in front of your own mirror, when you listen to others, sometimes you will find in their words the vocabulary that you need for some of the conversations yeah. that you want to have. So allow me to introduce you to where should we begin. Ooh, this is exciting. When you pick a partner, you pick a story. And often, Ooh. you will be recruited for a play that you didn't audition for. I, I told her I didn't know it was going to be like this, that once we had a child that I would be, like, downgraded. Because it's now, like, all about the kids. Mm. What's it like to be someone's disappointment for 20-something years? Todd. Where Should We Begin with Esther Perel is an Audible original series, bringing you into the office of the iconic relationship therapist as she counsels real couples on modern love. You can both tell me all kinds of things, and I can listen to each of you. I'm married to none of you, <laughs> so it's very easy. But you need to reach each other. These 10 anonymous couples have chosen to share their most intimate and unscripted conversations. I was going in the bathroom and I was burying my face in a towel and biting it and howling and crying, frustrated. Esther helps each couple put words to things they felt but didn't quite know how to say. Sometimes I treat you poorly because I see him as an extension of... Him, him is not here, you are here. Because I see you as an extension of me. Together, we're going to aim for a different conversation, a different exchange. Okay. How do I do that? <laughs> <laughs> I will try to help you. So, where should we begin? So one of the things I try to say is that when I work on sexuality, I'm actually much more interested in working on eroticism than on how people come experience this thing called the act of sex. Because many people, and women for sure for centuries, have done this act and felt nothing. Ooh. I'm interested oh. in the experience, in the meaning of it, in the beauty of it, in the poetics of it. So I often say sex, sex isn't just something that we do, sex is a place we go. <gasps> and oh. so where do you go in sex? What parts of you do you connect with? What is it that you try to express there? And this couple basically has been really stuck around the doing of it. And the doing and the performing of it hasn't really worked so well for them. And so here is what I say to them. I do feel like all of our conversations, we get very defensive. That like I'm trying to say something negative about you, but I'm not. I'm trying to just tell you sort of my view on it. It doesn't mean it's right. It's just what I feel. So here's the way you can tweak that. She already told you, I was doing something I didn't do that didn't feel good, that I was doing it for you. So when you talk to her, include that. Neither you liked it nor I liked it, and then it becomes a we state. That's what I mean by integrating the experience of the other. And then she can do the same. You know, here I was trying to be nice and to please you. Little did I know that that wasn't even what you wanted. And then you can say, that's not the woman I remember, so that she doesn't have to say that's not who I am. And then it's less polarized. Then you're not talking from the extremes. The minute you put yourself on the extreme, the other person will defend themselves. What do I have to do different in the way I communicate? What do I have to do different? That's a beautiful question, first of all. I wish that you would hopefully just kind of listen to what I'm saying without immediately feeling like I'm attacking you. Because I promise I'm, it's not my intention with whatever I'm saying to be attacking you. I'm just trying to tell you my viewpoint. But I think and I do know. <laughs> she just caught herself. Good. 
It's very rare that I just make a blanket statement like this. Your communication is terrible. I never knew that. I thought we were really good at yes. communicating. Well, no, that doesn't mean as a whole. But this thing that I'm watching here is at the root of a lot of what happens and happened. Is that because we're coming from different backgrounds and view things differently? And I don't know how much I would put it on culture, as much I would put it on your family cultures and your experiences that you had. I do see that it wasn't good for both of you and that conversation needs to take place. Not what was wrong, but how you changed this, how you learned sexual communication. I just cannot do that anymore. Case closed sexually. Like, I just can't. Something shut down. So, here's the idea. I don't know what your relationship is like sexually. But I have a sense for both of you it's been massively outcome-driven, rather unimaginative, too fast for both of you, and unsatisfying. It's terrible to be with a man who you feel is only pleasing himself, and it's terrible to be with a woman who you feel is just giving you pity sex. So, no matter what's going to happen, the first thing is touch. How you touch each other, how you stroke each other, how you kiss each other, and zero outcome. That's plenty of outcome. But isn't this thing supposed to happen naturally? Why is it supposed Where to be Where the hell did you learn <laughs> that BS? Good. <laughs> and for all of you who were not in the workshop and want to stay informed on this or want to actually also get the other episode because they're not all out yet. Um, just come up to me with your little piece of paper and your email and I'll make sure you hear it. What I'm trying to say is this. Why am I interested in sexuality? Because in every culture, in every era, sex is pretty much the window through which you can look at some of the most archaic, rooted, deep values of a society, of its treatment to women, to children, to power dynamics, to privilege, to double standards, all of it. And in every culture, sex is also the window through which the most radical, progressive changes take place. Tell me about you sexually, and I know a lot about who you are as a person. Tell me about this relationship, and we'll know a lot, and so forth, from the micro to the macro. This thing called sexuality, it's a lens. It's not an act. And the notion that, say, relationships start passionate and they just have one way to go and that's down, is also a fallacy. We should have a day just to debunk all the myths mm. and all the misconceptions by which we often think about these things. A lot of people, sexuality and the connection and the intimacy improves when their sense of self-worth improves, when they feel better about themselves, when they accept themselves more, then they, when they are less riddled with shame. It's all of that that goes into the experience. And because we live in a performance-driven industrialized place, we really would like to be able to quantify sex. How many orgasms, how hard, how long, how many pills, and all of that, rather than understand that the erotic is a beautiful, radiant interlude that is massively unproductive. It has no numbers. You can't measure it. It's a state of being. And that in order to be able to have that experience around the erotic, what we need today is a level of relational intelligence. And why is this so important? You know, 10, 15 years ago, if I went to a company to work on relationships in the company, it usually was because there was a crisis. And it was called the soft skills. Nobody cared a great deal about this, as long as it could help with the bottom line. But everything has shifted to an economy of service. So is marriage, by the way, an economy of service. 
We want an experience in marriage. We want to feel connected, we want to feel known, we want to feel seen, we want to feel a sense of purpose, we want to feel special. If that ain't service, what is? So we are completely in an economy of service and experience. And for that, we need relational intelligence. We need to understand the basics of how we connect to others, how we respect others, how we share our values, how we trust them, how we let them trust us, how we can dream with them, all of those major pieces that have come to be known as relational intelligence. It's not the tasks that you accomplish, it's how you attend to the many other things around you while you are attending to the task. Very different. And the good thing about intelligence is that you can cultivate it. Some of us have a better sensibility about it, but we can really all cultivate it. So, can we get the lights on all of you? And I'll play you one other little clip, which I think... Do we have another one, Nils? You see, you two don't have a problem loving each other. You know, you have this elephant that's been between the two of you for a long time with a complete over-focus on your performance, on the erectile difficulties, you know, and all these ugly words that are completely shaming and emasculating, and you know the word emasculating does not exist in the feminine. That's a plague for men. So, change the language, because it is crippling. And it's as if you don't have a whole body. Yes, we make love with the whole body and a lot of other parts of us, not just with our genitals. If you stay focused on those damn genitals, not much is going to happen. Simply because it's reductionistic and rather boring. And plus you can't rely on them. But you can rely on your hand, you can rely on your on your smell, you can rely on your skin, you can rely on your hair, you can rely on your voice, you can rely on your smile, on your eyes, my God. There's a lot of instruments in this orchestra. And you're going to learn a question that was never asked to you as a child. What would you like? I don't think that was a question that was part of the family vocabulary. No. And so it's a little awkward to say, I like, or I would like, or this feels good, or this is, it's like I'm going to, this is going to be called the therapy of indulgence. How do we learn to indulge? To experience pleasure for its own sake. I asked this to him, because yesterday we were talking, tell me how you were loved, and I will tell you how you make love. And when you have this man, and he comes from a family where they sat at a table and they ate and nobody said a word, and nobody asked him ever, what do you like? Because that wasn't part of what was important in their upbringing. It is clear that that lack of knowledge about himself, that lack of permission that he gives himself, has entered his body and lives under his skin and has become one of the major themes. It is not for everybody to have a therapy of indulgence. Some people have been massively indulgent and it's time that they start thinking about others. <clears throat> so when you ask me, what are the success markers? What are the specific things people need to do? I think that the important thing is to not think that there is a list out there. You know, somebody asked me once, what, you know, do you do a therapy where you give homework? Do you let people, you know? And I said, for some people, it's time to get off their butt and to do homework and get into action. But other people have been running around and moving and doing all the time, and it's time that they sit down and think for a moment and let themselves feel. It's the same when you ask, what makes for a good relationship? For some people, it's the ability to, for the first time, focus on themselves. For other people, it's the ability to finally step out of themselves and focus on someone else. For some people, it's the ability of transforming shame into guilt. 
so that they're not so focused on how bad they feel about themselves so that they can finally feel bad for how the other person is feeling and take responsibility for it if needed. For some people, it's about becoming more thoughtful. For other people, it's about becoming more vocal. For other people, it's about shutting up for a change. What happens these days is that we really often want a steps, and the steps has a finite number because past seven we usually glaze. And I don't have seven steps for a happy life. But I, we all understand at this point that our attention is being hacked, our brains are becoming more fragmented and distracted, we are not paying enough attention to what's literally in front of us, often because of this, and that we need to detox from all kinds of things, including the digital one. And from that place, you ask yourself, how am I doing in the department of my relationships? Not just your intimate relationships, in general, with your parents, your family, your siblings, your friends, how am I doing? How much have I attended to that part of my life? And how much am I attending to other success markers of my life? And what have I done? And am I showing up? Is there somebody I've been meaning to call for umpteen days because I know they're sick and every day I forget? And hold yourself to task. And don't feel bad about yourself when you hold yourself to task. Just realize that you need to create agency and action towards it. And if every one of us leaves these days that we are here, and we actually elevate our sense of accountability, relationship accountability is going through some difficulty these days. Why? Because we have this thing. And with this thing, I can ghost you on the spot. Disappear, gone. You don't exist anymore. An hour ago, I was sending you 150 of them. Now, gone. That ghosting experience, we've always been rejected, but this one is really topping. And then if we don't do the ghosting, many of us do the simmering version. It'd be great to get together someday. I'm super busy. I'm going to be traveling for the next month. But when I come back, we shall meet. And then we have the icing version, which is just an up version of the simmering. I really enjoyed meeting you. I'm not sure that I'm ready for anything more in my life at this point, but I would love when I'm ready to get back to you. And all these versions of accountability or lack thereof are fantastic because they are often summarized in what my friend and colleague Terry Real has began to call a situation of stable ambiguity. Stable ambiguity is a situation that is completely connected to the digital relational revolution. It means just enough not to feel alone with some of the comforts of consistency, but certainly not too much to feel like I've lost my freedom and I am now committed and trapped. Stable ambiguity. A little bit of that, but not too much so that I don't have too much of the other. And in this space, many people go around with massive cases of FOMO and massive cases of and massive uncertainty that accompanies it. It's a very interesting thing, right? More choice and more uncertainty and crippling self-doubt. How is it possible that we are going from one event to another to talk about confidence and the relational doubts are all the time creeping up on us? So for me, one of the things about success is not about hot and awesome, it's actually about more thoughtful about others, and it's about a little bit more accountability. There are a lot of people who are accountable to the environment and not accountable to the right, the person, the flower, and the animal that is right next to them. It's great as an idea. It's poor as an action.
And you bring that home into your relationships. And you begin to own things. And you begin to be able to say when you know that you're doing stuff, when you know that you're asking in a way that guarantees that you're not going to get. We are all very good at that. And then complain that the other person isn't responding. And if you just go down one line after the other and look at the things that you could improve on, small, don't make big promises, small, in the moment, you come back and you just say, that wasn't cool. I could have done this a little better. I know that this is a tough day for you. I didn't have to have another fit right now. Something that just says, I see myself through your eyes and I know what I have just done and try to get away with. We do that, we will probably improve our relationships by a lot. You follow me? How many of you does this speak to you? Okay. From there, if you want to top up the temperature, you can, but that's a different story. I'm, I, so, give the person next to you not what you want them to give to you. Typically, we give to the other person that with which, which we want them to give to us, but that's not. Give to them that which they want, which may often be uncomfortable. You're not the measuring stick. And all kinds of things like that. And these messages for me are the things that I began to tell my boys from the moment they could understand. They grew up with these ideas. The same way that some people always taught their children, when somebody walks into the house, you first want to give them water or something to drink. Welcome them. It's that mentality. So I'm more about the mentality I'm more about an ethics of relationship than I am about tips and tricks. And for some of you, that may be exactly what you like, and for others, that may have something lacking. I'm well aware of that. But I'm going to resist the temptation of telling you this is good and this helps and all of that. I think if you get this idea, you will actually feel more empowered and more free. What is self-esteem? It is the ability to see ourselves as flawed individuals and still hold ourselves in high regard. It's anything but perfection. So welcome your flaws, people. And now, if you could turn to the person next to you, and instead of telling them how great and awesome you are, you could tell them one little flaw that you struggle with, we would make the world a more humble place. That was really, really good. That's really good. I will um, personally be checking out her podcast. Where do we go from here? Because, um, yeah, I need that. <laughs> Period, point blank. And uh, so what we've got next here is a article. And this was an article that was posted by someone that I work with on my Facebook page called The 12 Types of Orgasms and What They Are and How to Have Them. All right, so we're basically just going to jump right in here. Um, a little bit about the article, it says, um, Clarine Costa, PhD, is one of Canada's leading sexologists and relationship experts, a sex-positive feminist, Sushi fanatic and opinionated beehive booty shaker. She encourages us to invite and accept pleasure into our lives. Dr. Clarine is all 
about real sex for real people, and she aims to make the topic a part of our everyday conversation, which it definitely should be. Um, beyond just memes. <laughs> All right, what else? Um, are you satisfied with your sex life? A sex positive, intersectional feminist and sexologist. I hate hearing that people aren't having great sex or aren't experiencing through experiencing enough full body pleasure in the act. We deserve to have regular orgasms, although many of us are still learning, debating, and practicing the best part. Uh, what's essential is understanding that we are all capable of experiencing orgasms in a variety of different ways. That's absolute truth. Period, point blank. Hmm. All right, so let's look at the 12 orgasms and how to achieve them. It says, some experts say that this small spongy area above the front of the vaginal wall is a myth otherwise known as the Grandiger spot? What? Bruh, you know what? Let me just, let me stop from the beginning. Let me not skip past anything. It says, Q Nicki Minaj Her Majesty re- recently announced that she demands that she climaxes and that every woman should demand the same. She goes on to say, let me see here. She goes on to say that giving and receiving pleasure should be 50 50, whatever 50 50 looks like for you in any given sexual encounter. Or experience that's up to you and your partner to to negotiate before, during, and after. All right, seriously, friends, your body is capable of some of the most intense, satisfying, and healthy energy-producing forces. And admiring sex expert Lou Lou Page says that vaginal uh, vaginal bearers can experience ten different types of orgasms while penis bearing can have up to eight, but I think there are about 12 altogether, i.e. this wonderful um, article. All right. Debbie Dotson, the grandmother of orgasms, has some of the best tips and advice about climaxing. Yes, she does. Uh, Dotson speaking to the to the experience of the Orgasm via the lens of what it feels like, not just the mechanics of what makes it happen. Says She says, clitoral and penal orgasms result from stimulation of the pudendal pathway, P-U-D-E-N-D-A-L pathway, while orgasms that result from the G-spot, vaginal and erectile stimulation, often invoke the pelvic nerve, stimulating the pelvic nerve via the rectum can also lead to pleasure in some surprising ways. From healing migraines and relieving stress to soothing pain and boosting your immune system and giving your body an effective workout, orgasms really are a cure-all. All right, so let's talk about it. So let's take a look at the 12 orgasms and how you can have them, how they work, and how you can achieve them, yada, yada. Let's get into it. Some experts say that the small spongy area above the front vaginal wall is a myth, otherwise is a myth, also otherwise also known, otherwise known as the Graffenberg spot, G-R-A-F-F-E-N-B-E-R-G spot. It is, according to to Leon, the most mysterious of 
er erotic zones. Um, for some, it's downright <laughs> mythical. <laughs> That's interesting. It's downright mythical. Um, with the big G's, more experience, mere experience, still subject to ongoing debate. Try telling that to the estimated 30% of women reporting that they achieve the orgasms through penetration alone. It seems kind of boring. Anyway, um, exactly, it, it, it doesn't really matter if you believe it or not. What matters is if applying pressure to this mysterious area in your body feels fantastic, then go for it. Period, point blank. How to have one use a clitoris come hither motion. Oh, <laughs> how to have it use a clitoris come hither motion. And with applied pressure, massage the area slowly. Don't be afraid to get your hands a little wet and a little wet and maximize orgasmic potential by gently having the by gently having the Libya kiss at at the same time, like how you see in porn. <laughs> um, according to the study reported on science of relationships, researchers discovered that stimulation of the nipple activated an area of the brain known as the genital sensory cortex this is the same brain region activated by the stimulation of the clitoris uh vagina and cervix what this means is that women's brains seem to be seem to process nipple and genital stimulation in the same way do 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 do, do. so it is possible sometimes comma it's easy to forget that our brains are actually the biggest sex organ that we have and their influence on how we experience pleasure on the whole is 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 huge yes it is absolutely right so we've gone over the G spot orgasm the net, the breast nipple orgasm, and then also the kissing oral orgasm. That's, that's what we're going into. Okay. Uh, do says your lips are packed with closely set nerve endings, classified as a a monocumous region of the body similar to the outer vulva nipples and clitoris this means that they have the power to get you aroused the type of orgasm requires some time commitment slow lip uh sinking tongue rolling and teasing are part of the build up your arousal and should in my opinion be a part of foreplay at all times anyway achieving orgasm this way requires deep focus and it can happen interesting all right anal orgasm aka one of my favorite yes your butt <laughs> this article is hilarious <laughs> yes your butt <laughs> for many women Anal intercourse feels fantastic. If you want to try it, use a healthy dose of lube and slowly work your way in and around the anal area while preparing for penetration. Anal penetration should at first be a slow process, especially if you're new to the sensation. The tight muscles and thin obstetrical cell <laughs> cell layer within and subject to tearing layer within are subject to tearing but they are also able to <laughs> provide you with sensational pleasure uh guaranteed bead standards are a good starter toy to uh add to your sex toolbox uh use spot orgasm next on the list the urethra. Yep, the pee hole. <laughs> uh, 
And uh, part of the reason why I'm doing so much laughing is because um, me and my partner have regular conversations about different kinks and uh, different things in relationship to what I'm talking about right now. And it just reminds me of all the shit talking we do and all the shit that we talk about and all the shit that we see. And I, I hope no one takes offense to my immature laughing but um it's really just like a whole inside joke in my head but anyway the urethra yes the pee hole <laughs> surprised well as lou page states in her educational interviews the urethra is usually surrounded uh on three sides by the clitoris this is because your clitoris is usually a big a lot bigger than you think it is it goes three to five inches deep inside you. When your U-spot is stimulated, the uh, erectile tissue surrounding the opening encourages with, uh, engorges with blood, thus triggering the skein's gland, S-K-E-N-E-A, apostrophe S glands, to produce Prolozac fluid. Or prosthetic fluid, the stuff of squirts, which is not pee, <laughs> which is not pee, uh, and you, and you to be, or become aroused. This is a really good article to take notes on. I might do that. A spot, which is just as as important as your G spot, in my opinion. Um. It's so insanely neglected. But anyway, let us continue. This is your inner vaginal zone, also known as the interior forex or fornix, F-O-R-N-I-X. Look for it at the front vaginal wall upwards of your belly button area. Some say it's a great pressure. It's a great uh, pressure point because it can be considered as indirect stimulation for the G of the G spot, much like the U spot and clitoris hood are indirect um, stimulation of the clitoris itself. The zone is best explored when you're quite aroused and your muscles are super relaxed. Being relaxed, in my opinion, is absolutely unequivocally 110% misunderstood misused and misdirected when it comes to having quality sex I mean for me personally I believe that if you're gonna have quality sex uh, it really depends on the type of mood you set beforehand You know, some people can do quickies. Others, you have to have like a whole spill and a whole spin going on beforehand. As far as like the romantic shit is 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 concerned, Capricorns and Tauruses, y'all know what I'm talking about. Anyway, um, the clitoral, the cervical, <laughs> the cervical orgasm. Is that where I was? Hold on, I think I lost my spot. Yes, yes it was. Alright. This is also known as the deep spot orgasm. Or posterior fornix. It's similar to the A spot in that it responds to pressure rather than related stimulation. Repeated stimulation. Finding the area is the result of deep penetration. For some vaginas, this may area may be quite sensitive and possibly feel rather painful rather more painful than pleasurable if the for if the pressure is forced many people report experience intense orgasms with stimulation of this spot some say it feels like a a little like anal sex which uh, makes sense as the posterior fornix shares the same nerve as the anus Uh, clitoral orgasm and the most common 
and all of them. You're much more likely to reach the big O if your partner take, takes a little leisure, leisurely route around the most central areas before holding in the clitoris itself. Um, almost of all us with clitorises are capable of having a total orgasm. And in fact, many of us result aren't capable of orgasming. Capable of coming to orgasm via the other styles. This is because the clitoris can be considered the hub of pressure of pleasure. That little love button holds the key to numerous uh, bundled nerves, approximately 8,000, compared to the penis, which is 4,000. Um, whether you're receiving oral sex, applying pressure, or breaking out, your favorite pleasure... Uh, product for a more consistent vibe clitoral orgasms are definitely ranked as a favorite your clitoris is uh best served with a blend of direct and indirect stimulation the more you become aroused the more sensitive and erect it becomes this is why foreplay is such a big part of the overall pressure including overall pleasure including experience and that is it, and that is all, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for listening. Um, that is the article, um, and it's packed with information. I'll also be posting this on my Frequency Bay um, page. So if you want to check it out yourself, you're more than welcome to. Uh, thanks so much for listening. That'll be all for now. Madam Butterfly out.